You've got Opportunity Zone questions. We've got Opportunity Zone answers. This is the inaugural edition of Opportunity Zone's podcast, Listener Questions. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. And today I'm fielding questions from listeners who have submitted voicemail messages to our Opportunity Zone podcast listener hotline. If you'd like to submit your own Opportunity Zones question or comment, you can do so by calling 682-800-1505. Our first question today comes from Barry from Richmond, Virginia, who has a question about how Opportunity Zones could possibly help prisoner reentry programs. Is there any, um, is, is the Opportunity Zone or is there any opportunity zone investors around the country that's working with reentry with the with the first steps act that um, the Trump administration passed around criminal justice is there any um opportunity zones that's working maybe with nonprofits around the uh, reentry of uh, federal prisoners or prisoners coming back into low income communities Barry, thanks for the question. I do not know of a lot of Opportunity Zones programs that are tackling prisoner reentry. The only one I know of anecdotally is the one that was conveyed to me by a former podcast guest of mine, Lennox Jackson from Chicago. He is working on a project that has some element of prisoner reentry uh, and workforce housing on the south side of Chicago. Um, I'll link to that podcast episode in the show notes for today's episode. You can find those at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. Uh, if any listener out there knows of any other Opportunity Zones program that helps with prisoner reentry, uh, let me know. Uh, call the hotline at 682-800-1505 and leave a voicemail with uh, details, and uh, we'll try to uh, get that played during the next episode. Our next question today comes from Vivian from Long Island, New York, and he has a question about the substantial improvement test. I have a client of mine who has got an Opportunity Zone fund created. He has about 490000 which he wants to put in an Opportunity Zone. The question is, in case he buys a property for $1 million, multifamily, eight-unit property, and he puts in his 490000 and gets the remaining mortgage from the bank. The question would be whether uh, the money he has to spend, is it a million dollars or just $490,000 for updating, renovating, or whatever you want to do with the property to get the benefit of the Opportunity Zone? Uh, opportunity zone. Well, Vivian, thanks for the question. This is actually a question I get pretty frequently, or some variation of this question, dealing with the substantial improvement provision of the Opportunity Zones legislation. So in this example, the investor invests $490,000 into an OZ property that is purchased for a million, so presumably he gets the remaining 510000 in the form of a mortgage. The question is, does he have to spend 
a million dollars to meet the substantial improvement test or just the $490,000 in cash that he put in? And the answer is uh, neither, actually. Uh, the, the, the answer is you have to put into the improvements a value above the adjusted basis in the property. And for the sake of this test, the value of the land is not included in that adjusted basis. So it all comes down to what the building value is worth. In this example, I'm going to make up some numbers now, but we know the property was purchased for a million dollars or it is to be purchased for a million dollars. Let's say that the value of the building is 700,000 and the land is valued at 300,000. The investor or the qualified opportunity fund would then have to substantially improve the property by at least $700,000. Or actually, I think it's worded more than $700,000. So the amount that is invested in cash versus the amount that's invested in the form of a loan or other financing or mortgage, um, that's not the, the, the question here. It all comes down to what the adjusted basis in the property is minus the land value. Our next question is from Ralph from Memphis, Tennessee, who has a question about low-income housing tax credits. I'm trying to get a question answered. Can you combine both low-income housing tax credits with uh, Opportunity Zone tax credits and to uh, use both of them for one project, for the same project? Well, Ralph, thanks for the question. The answer, the short answer at least, is yes, you can do that. You can pair low-income housing tax credits with Opportunity Zones. In fact, you can pair a variety of other tax credits with the Opportunity Zones program, low-income housing tax credits being one of them, new markets tax credits, and uh, historic tax credits is another one that's commonly used for, uh, for reuse of historic buildings and historic building preservation. So I actually have a podcast episode on the topic of twinning historic tax credits with opportunity zones, and it's a you know I think it'll it'll come across as uh, as similar conceptually at least if you want to give that one a listen with my guest Rich Rogers from January of 2019 earlier this year. I'll link to that episode in the show notes for today's episode, which you can find at opportunitydb.com/podcast. Now, I should warn you that you know doing so may compl- complicate things a little bit. I would definitely uh, get in touch with uh, a CPA to see how to go about doing all that. But essentially, what you're doing is just creating different capital stacks um, that would kind of feed into the same project, uh, as as uh, as I understand it. Our next question comes from Betty in Miami, Florida, and she has a question about options for existing property and business owners in Opportunity Zones. Hello. Hi, this is Betty from Miami, Florida. I'm calling to find out some information because I've been running into some problems. I have a small property, a residential property that's highly underdeveloped in a very up-and-coming area. Uh, But I have an existing LLC and an existing property, and it appears that only new owners of a property and new establishers of a business are eligible to participate in the Opportunity Zone program, which seems to be a big a big problem for those of us who want to invest in our communities. Hi, Betty. Thanks for the great comment. I think you speak for a lot of existing property owners and a lot of existing business owners out there who feel like they're getting the short end of the stick here when it comes to community investment in Opportunity Zones. A lot of existing property owners, existing business owners such as yourself, I hear from them all the time via email. 
and phone. They want to participate in the program. They've been in these opportunity zones for a long time, and they're feeling like the benefit doesn't apply to them. And in a way, they're right. You know, the, the intent of the policy, for better or worse, is to bring new capital into opportunity zones. So they've set up this program to make it pretty difficult for existing property owners and business owners to participate, unfortunately. Um, that said, there are a few options for existing property and business owners. And I had Jessica Malay on my podcast. She's a tax attorney for Duval and Stackenfeld in New York City. Jessica was on the podcast with me back in June to discuss legal considerations for qualified opportunity fund formations. And part of our conversation didn't actually make the final cut for that episode. One of the questions that I asked her about was this very one, uh, some options for existing property owners. So I'm going to let Jessica actually answer this question. She can do it better than I can. This is from our conversation back in June, recorded a few months ago. Uh, The question I posed to her was, what are some options for existing property owners? Yeah, sure. So um, this is a tricky one, and there's some policy issues that that, that creep in here that I think people need to be sensitive to as well. Because, you know, as you mentioned, one of the rules, in order for a property to be a good property in the hands of a QOF or in the hands of a a qualified opportunity zone business, it does need to be acquired by purchase after December 31st, 2017. So, I mean, the one thing that an existing property owner can do is just sell the property, right? You sell the property to a new qualified opportunity fund, uh, and, and you take the cash and you walk away, and maybe you take your cash and you invest in a, in a separate qualified opportunity fund, right? Um, and I, that's where some of the policy issues get a little bit tricky because, in a sense, are you displacing the people who sort of been in these zones and own the property for a long time. Um, so I, I think that's one that, that people are, are, are less comfortable with. Um, but there are several options for existing property owners to, to hold on to the property or to keep at least a piece of the property um, while still allowing the property to be developed under the Opportunity Zone program. Um, you know, the first thing that you can do is you can look at that, the way that the related party rule works. Um, and what the what, what the statute does is it, you know, it puts in this related party requirement and it defines relatedness for this purpose at a, a pretty low, at a, at a 20% uh, ownership level. So one thing that you can do is you can, if you're an existing owner, you can sell your property to a new QOF um, and then you can kind of come back into the, the equity structure for, for a 20% interest. Now, of course, this doesn't allow you to, to keep a majority stake in the property. Um, and I suppose if you think about the policy goals behind the program, you know, it was it, it, the policy, as I understand it, is to really bring new money, new investment into these opportunity zones. So in a sense, you know, the, the, the statute really backs that up by not really permitting these existing property owners to keep a huge, uh, huge ownership interest in the property. Um, there are a couple other structures that people are are, are using, um, which the tre- treasury has not explicitly blessed, um, but they also haven't explicitly uh, said that you can't do it. <laughs> so I think one one thing that people are thinking of, you know, that, that first structure I mentioned where you sell the property outright and you come back in for twenty percent, that's a way for an existing property to actually participate in the opportunity zone tax benefits, right? If they sell the property and they have an eligible gain, they can then come into the QOF and take advantage of the QOF tax benefits while also having an ownership interest in the property. Um, 
Another thing that people are thinking about, um, and this gets a little bit technical, but if I kind of talk you through the structure, um, it would be helpful for some people. Uh, so, you know, the way that most of these deals are set up is you have a qualified opportunity fund owning an interest in a lower tier entity, a qualified opportunity zone business. And so if you assume that that qualified opportunity zone business is going to be a partnership for tax purposes, then you you can think about the QOZB having essentially two partners, right? One partner will be the QOF, and the QOF will contribute all the money into the QOZB to develop the property. And then you can have the existing property owner actually contribute the property into the QOZB. Now, if the only thing that they're contributing is raw land, if we kind of make it simple, we say, well, wait a minute. If you've contributed that property into the QOZB, then the QOZB has not acquired the property by purchase. It's been contributed in. And that's absolutely true. But the way that they defined the some of the rules that apply at the QOZB level in the regs, they said that substantially all of the tangible property at the QOZB has to be this property that's been acquired by purchase. Um, and they define substantially all for this purpose as 70%, 7-0. So if you think about it, you, you kind of have a bucket of 30% that you, you can do whatever you want with. And 30% of the tangible property in the QOZB does not have to be acquired by purchase. So if you have a, an existing property owner contribute land into a QOZB and then a QOF comes in and, and, and throws in a bunch of money and use that money to develop the property, if the value of that land, which we're, we would concede in that instance is sort of a bad asset, bad tangible property, not meeting 70% test, but if it's less than 30% of the value of all the tangible property, then technically under the rules that should work. You should be able to meet the 70% test that way. So that's another thing that people are thinking about, which allows existing property owners to stay in the deal without triggering an upfront tax um, and still get the property developed. Well, thanks, Jessica, for the thorough answer. So just to summarize there what Jessica said, you know, three options that she brought up. One is the property owner, the, the business owner could just sell outright to a qualified opportunity fund and walk away. Two, the existing property or business owner could sell the property or business to a qualified opportunity fund and then reinvest back in uh, as long as the investment is less than 20% of the total equity in the fund that would skirt around the related party rules just fine. And then that existing property owner would be eligible for the tax benefits, albeit at a much lower equity ratio, um, drawing down from 100% theoretically to under 20%. And then the third one was pretty technical in nature. Um, I don't know if I can summarize that one uh, very eloquently, but but essentially, you know, taking advantage of the seventy thirty test and and basically just having that that property be a quote unquote bad asset within the QOZB. We've got time for one more question today, and it comes from Eric in Playa del Rey. And his question deals with business incentives for business owners in Opportunity Zones. Hi, my name is Aaron from Playa del Rey, and I just have a question about businesses that are going into the Opportunity Zone. Maybe you've covered it before, but I haven't heard it. Um, What are the benefits to a business that moves into an Opportunity Zone as far as rent breaks, um, et cetera? I have some people that I meet that own businesses, and when I mentioned they can open an opportunity zone, I wish I knew exactly what they would be benefited by. Also, if you can break down exactly what a million-dollar capital gain 
savings would be or deferment would be over the five years, the seven years, and the 10 years, and what happens if you leave it in longer. And then I remember you mentioning something about 47 years and how that all plays out in simple math for capital gains. Thanks so much. Eric, thanks for the question. Or actually, it looks like you snuck in two questions on me here. Uh, So to answer your first question, what incentives apply to business owners who open up shop in an opportunity zone or move into an opportunity zone? Are they eligible for benefits such as rent breaks, et cetera? Uh, Rent breaks, no. Um, Really, the benefits surround capital. So they should theoretically have a somewhat easier time raising capital. If they're looking to raise capital from outside investors, they can tout their business as a qualified opportunity zone business, which would be eligible for the main opportunity zone investing tax breaks. Uh, If they want to self-capitalize, if they want to start up a new business in an opportunity zone, and maybe they're not seeking outside funding, but they just want to capitalize it themselves, Let's say a client of yours wants to establish a business inside an opportunity zone and he has a capital gain in the stock market that he wants to realize. He can sell his Facebook stock or his Amazon stock or his ETFs or mutual funds or whatever it may be. Maybe he's got a million dollar capital gain. He can use that to fund his new qualified opportunity zone business and then defer the gain, reduce the gain liability and then exclude all capital gains appreciation on the back end. So, and that kind of dovetails nicely into answering your second question, which was what would a $1 million capital gain savings be over those five, seven, and 10 year periods? And the answer is, and this may surprise you, nobody knows for sure. And the reason for that, there's two reasons for that. One, we don't know what the tax rate is going to be in 2026, which is when the deferred capital gains come home to roost, is they are recognized at the end of 2026, and the 2026 capital gains tax rate will apply. We don't know what that, what that rate's going to be. And two, uh, the biggest benefit to the program is what happens on the back end. It's what happens to that ensuing capital gain that is generated within the Opportunity Zone investment. and well, how much, how much did your $1 million grow to within that Opportunity Zone investment? That's going to determine how much you're actually saving. But we can use a couple of assumptions here. And well, first, before I do that, I'd like to point my listeners to a calculator that I have on my site that kind of tackles this very problem. The Opportunity Fund Tax Calculator uh, can be used to estimate the tax savings of an Opportunity Fund investment or an investment in a Qualified Opportunity Zone business. Uh, you want to find that and play with some of the numbers and make some assumptions and plug some of your own variables in, you can do so at opportunitydb.com slash calculator. Now, getting back to your $1 million example, first of all, you get to defer that tax gain or that capital gain tax liability until 2026. So essentially, you're um, you're receiving a seven-year interest-free loan from the federal government. And what amount are you receiving? Well. There's a few different capital gains tax rates, uh, depending on what type of asset it is that is sold and whether or not you're eligible to be taxed under the net investment income tax rate of 3.8%. But let's assume that just to keep the math simple, I'm glossing over a lot of stuff here, but just to keep the math simple, that your capital gains tax rate 
on whatever it is that you are recognizing a capital gain is 20%. So in your million dollar example, you have a $200,000 tax liability, but instead of paying that $200,000 in April of 2020, you're now getting to defer recognition of that gain until the end of 2026. So now you owe $200,000 in 2027, or do you? So two things are going to affect that. One is your holding period. If you achieve a five-year holding period before the end of 2026, you get to reduce your tax liability by 10%. So now you're paying $180,000 instead of $200,000. And then the second thing is uh, if you achieve a seven-year holding period before the end of 2026, and if you are able to roll over your original gain into an opportunity zone investment by the end of this year, by the end of 2019, you will achieve that holding period of seven years before the end of 2026. If everything, assuming everything doesn't blow up, right? Um, You get to reduce your tax liability by 15%. So now instead of paying $200,000 in 2020, you're paying $170,000 in 2027. So you get that seven-year interest-free loan from the federal government, and they're essentially paying you to take it, right? Because now you're saving $30,000 on your tax bill that eventually comes home to roost. So two things there. One, $30,000 in tax savings, but two, a kind of a hidden amount is the additional amount of capital that you're putting to work for you over that seven-year period. Instead of being able to invest just $800,000 after paying a $200,000 tax liability, you're able to invest a million dollars. So now you have just that much more capital compounding for you for that much longer, for an additional seven years. You've got an additional $200,000 compounding for you that you otherwise may not have. So it's really you're saving more than just the $30,000. You're, you're also earning more within your investment. Now, big asterisks here. We don't know what the capital gains tax rate is going to be in 2026. So if it stays at 20%, you know, that's how much you're saving. But nobody knows what the future holds, right? We don't know who's going to be in the White House. We don't know what type of administration we're going to have. We don't know what they're going to do or not do with the capital gains tax rate. So then third, this is the biggest one, is you get to exclude all capital gains tax liability from within the appreciation of your opportunity zone investment. So, well, what is that $1 million gain that you roll over into an opportunity zone investment? What does it do for you? And by that, I mean, how does that asset appreciate over time? And when you go to sell it in 10, 20, 30 years, depending Assuming that you are able to achieve a holding period of at least 10 years, whenever you go to sell that asset, you owe no tax on the capital gain from within that asset. So in our example, we've got a million dollars that we roll over into an opportunity zone investment. Let's say you put it to work in your own new qualified opportunity zone business. And then 20 years later, you sell that business for $11 million dollars. Well, you have a $10 million capital gain, and normally, under today's tax rates, assuming that they are 20%, you would owe $2 million to the federal government the following April. Well, in the Opportunity Zone investment example, that $2 million capital gain tax liability goes away forever. You never pay that $2 million. So that's a long-winded answer to your question, and again... The real answer is, the short answer is, I don't know, and nobody knows, because it depends on a variety of factors. Depends on the tax rate in 2026, and depends 
on how much your investment grows over the holding period. Now, you also mentioned a 47-year period uh, that you thought I had brought up at, at one point. I think you may be uh, referring to the year 2047, which is when this program officially ends. Um, according to current IRS regulations on qualified opportunity funds, the fund has to sell off the assets at some point, and the the uh, Treasury Department, the IRS, um, somewhat arbitrarily picked the end of 2047 as, as the deadline to to sell these assets to achieve the gains that you are then able to wipe out. So I think that's that's what you meant by by that uh, 47 year mark is actually the year 2047. Thanks again to Eric for submitting that thoughtful two part question. I hope I answered it satisfactorily for you. And and thanks to everybody who submitted a question these last two weeks since I opened up this new podcast listener hotline. If you'd like to submit your own question to be answered on air, or if you just have a general comment for me or for the website or for the Opportunity Zone program, you can leave a voicemail at the Opportunity Zones podcast listener hotline. Call 682-800-1505. I hope to do uh, more of these episodes in the future where I collect a few of the best voicemail questions that are left and I can answer them on air. So keep the questions coming out there, everyone. And I hope to hear from you soon. Thank you. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit opportunitydb.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund Investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.